Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Ray Carruth couldn't move. He was lying in a fetal position in the trunk of a car, too afraid to even think about crawling out. His body ached and he was desperately thirsty, but he knew that if he left the trunk, he would risk going to prison for the rest of his life. It was December 15, 1999, and the 25-year-old NFL wide receiver was a fugitive from the law, wanted for murder in North Carolina. Instead of turning himself in, Carruth had decided to make a run for it. He convinced his friend to drive him to California, and he planned to hide in the trunk for the entire 2,500-mile journey. After 10 hours of driving, they'd stopped at a motel to get some rest. Carruth, worried about being spotted, decided to remain in the trunk. But now it had been nearly 10 hours since they'd stopped. Something was off. Carruth could feel it. He heard footsteps on the pavement outside. Carruth held his breath as the footsteps came closer, then men talking in hushed voices. Carruth felt his heart sink. He didn't know how, but he knew he'd been found. One of the men knocked on the trunk. It was the FBI. They knew Carruth was inside and needed to know if he had a weapon. A long moment passed as Carruth remained silent. This might be his last chance to get away. After all, he was one of the fastest wide receivers in the NFL. He could outrun a few FBI agents if he wanted to. There was a part of Carruth that believed he could keep running forever. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
This is our second episode on Ray Carruth, the Carolina Panthers wide receiver who hired two men to murder his pregnant girlfriend, Sharika Adams. Last week, we covered Carruth's beginnings, his NFL career, and how he planned the hit. This week, we'll cover the fallout of the shooting. In the fall of 1999, 25-year-old Ray Carruth felt like his entire life was hanging by a thread. His once promising career as an NFL wide receiver was falling apart thanks to a combination of injuries and poor performances. His finances were shredded after he'd lost millions investing in what turned out to be a massive Ponzi scheme. To top it all off, his ex-girlfriend, Sharika Adams, was eight months pregnant. The baby's birth would force Carruth to pay thousands in child support each month, which he already did for another son from a previous relationship. There was nothing Carruth could do to get his money back from the scam artist he invested with. On the football field, he felt powerless to stop his body from failing him. After just six games in 1999, he found himself sidelined yet again with an injury. His football career was slowly deteriorating and he couldn't do anything to stop it. However, there was something Carruth could do about his ex-girlfriend's pregnancy. He paid two of his friends, Van Brett Watkins and Michael Kennedy, to kill Sharika Adams and their unborn son. Just after midnight on November 16th, 1999, as Ray Carruth watched, Watkins and Kennedy ambushed Sharika on a dark road in Charlotte. Watkins fired five shots into Sharika's car. After the final shot was fired, Carruth drove off in his SUV. After checking to make sure that Sharika was dead, Watkins and Kennedy also fled the scene. But Sharika had survived the attack. She managed to drive the car onto a residential street, trying to get someone's attention while she called the police and told them what happened. Within a few minutes, a parade of police cars and an ambulance arrived to bring Sharika to the hospital. As Sharika was wheeled through the emergency room and directly into surgery, a police officer tried to ask her for details on her attack. He asked her to confirm what she'd said on the phone, that her boyfriend did this to her. Sharika answered without hesitation, it was Ray Carruth. As the doctors attempted to save Sharika and her baby, her would-be murderers prepared their alibis. Carruth called a girlfriend in Atlanta and struck up a conversation. Meanwhile, Watkins and Kennedy, along with their passenger, Kennedy's friend, Stanley Abraham, drove silently back to Watkins' truck. Watkins considered killing both Kennedy and Abraham to remove all witnesses, but he was out of bullets. Instead, he simply dumped the gloves he'd used and tossed the pistol out of the car window. When he finally split from Kennedy, Watkins took his truck directly to a Waffle House. Killing made him hungry. Carruth continued his lively conversation with the woman in Atlanta as he drove through a late-night car wash before heading towards the home of his Panthers teammate, linebacker Hannibal Navies. There, he settled in and played video games, secure in his alibi. He even chatted happily with Navy's girlfriend, Tanya, about Sharika Adams' pregnancy, making sure to emphasize how excited he was about the baby. 
he laid it on thick, saying he might even want to settle down with Sharika. At the Carolinas Medical Center in Charlotte, Sharika Adams was fighting for her life and the life of her baby as the doctors brought her into surgery. The bullets had missed her womb, but she'd lost too much blood. Her baby was being deprived of oxygen and suffocating. The doctors had to perform an emergency cesarean delivery. Chancellor Lee Adams was born at 1.42 a.m. on November 16, 1999, 10 weeks premature, but alive. Nurses rushed him into the neonatal intensive care unit where he was placed on a ventilator. Then the doctors got to work trying to save his mother. Her parents were notified and they raced to the hospital. Sharika's mother, Sandra, assumed that her daughter had been the victim of a random shooting and tried calling Caruth multiple times to no avail. When they reached the hospital, a nurse handed Sandra a picture of her newborn grandson, but also offered grim news. The baby had spent 70 minutes without enough blood and oxygen after the shooting, causing irreversible brain damage. Just before 2 a.m., Caruth was driving to meet yet another friend and alibi creator, this time ex-girlfriend Candace Smith, when an unknown number popped up on his pager. Curious, Caruth called the number. It was a distraught Sandra Adams, telling Caruth that her daughter had been shot and his son had been born. Caruth couldn't believe that Sharika was alive, nor that somehow her mother had his pager number. He stumbled to express shock that Sharika had been shot and told Sandra Adams that he'd go to the hospital as quickly as he could before hanging up. Caruth sat in his car, rattled. He wasn't sure what to do. If he went to the hospital, there was a chance the police were already onto him and were planning on arresting him. But he quickly realized that he had no choice. Not showing up at the hospital would practically be an admission of guilt. So he drove back to Hannibal Navy's house, woke up Hannibal and Tanya, and told them that Sharika had been shot. Caruth pretended to be as shocked as he could, and the three of them drove to the Carolinas Medical Center. Caruth arrived at the hospital and found out that Sharika was still in surgery. He couldn't bear being in the same room as Sharika's parents, so he stepped into an empty conference room and sat on the floor, alone with his thoughts. Everything about Caruth's actions, his delayed response, his odd story, his behavior at the hospital, made Sharika's parents suspicious. So they confronted Caruth directly and asked him if he shot their daughter. Caruth didn't answer right away. He deflected, angry that they would even ask. But Sharika's parents pushed. Caruth finally just gave them his story. He and Sharika went out to the movies, came back to Caruth's house, then went their separate ways. Hannibal and Tanya left the hospital, but soon afterwards, Candace Smith arrived to give Caruth some company. He seemed distraught and anxious. So she tried to comfort him by massaging his shoulders as they waited for news from the doctors. Caruth quietly confessed that he wished Sharika would hurry up and die. Smith was blown away by this callous response. It also stirred suspicion in her mind. 
At four o'clock in the morning, the police arrived to begin their investigation into the shooting. They mentioned that nothing had been stolen from Sharika's car, implying this wasn't a robbery. As the police talked to Caruth, the gears in Candace Smith's head continued to turn. The more she thought about it, the more it seemed possible that Caruth could be involved in something like this. After he spoke to the police, Caruth went back to Smith, who now had some questions of her own. She asked him directly if he'd shot Sharika. Caruth denied shooting her, but admitted that he was there when it happened. He said he'd fled the scene and drove to his teammate's house. It made no sense. Why would he have casually invited Candace Smith to hang out at 1.30 in the morning after witnessing Sharika's shooting? Smith realized that Caruth, beyond the shadow of a doubt, was involved. She kept asking questions, and Caruth cracked. He confessed to what he'd done, but continued to defend himself, claiming he only told Watkins to shoot Adams in the stomach to stop the pregnancy, not kill her. And because he didn't pull the trigger, he didn't actually commit murder. Smith was absolutely horrified. Soon after, the police came back for Caruth. They wanted to test his clothes, search his home, and impound his car. Caruth left with them, and Smith went back home in tears. She wanted nothing to do with Ray Caruth ever again. Around 7 a.m., Sharika Adams finally came out of surgery and regained consciousness. The damage she'd suffered from the shooting was severe. The bullets had punctured her intestines, stomach, and liver, and she'd lost six liters of blood, one and a half times her body's normal capacity. Given the urgency of her condition, homicide detectives spoke to Sharika as soon as she was awake. She was unable to speak through the various breathing tubes in her throat and nose, but she was alert enough to communicate, and she was ready to tell the world about Ray Carruth. When we come back, Caruth becomes the center of the investigation. Now, back to the story. On November 16, 1999, 25-year-old Ray Caruth, wide receiver for the Carolina Panthers, added another title to his resume, attempted murderer. After successfully planning and executing the shooting of his pregnant ex-girlfriend, Sharika Adams, Caruth's goal was now to lay low and hope the police wouldn't figure out what happened. Back in the hospital, Sharika Adams was awake and communicating with police. She couldn't speak, so she scribbled on a notepad to answer the detective's questions. They asked her to describe the events of the shooting, how Caruth stopped in the middle of the road and the third car arrived, blocking her in before someone inside fired. Her parents were in the room, becoming increasingly enraged as they realized that Caruth had been involved, that he'd been waiting in the hospital with them just a few hours earlier. Satisfied with the answers, the detective left. They had to find Ray Caruth. Sharika's mother, Sandra, showed her a picture of her newborn baby. Sandra told her daughter that the baby was named Chancellor, like Sharika always wanted. Sharika had one request, 
that the baby's last name be Adams, not Carruth. After 45 minutes, the doctor asked Sharika's parents to let her rest, so they left the hospital room. Ten minutes later, Sharika lost consciousness. Three hours after that, she slipped into a coma. The police knew from the beginning that Ray Carruth was likely responsible for the shooting. But they needed to gather evidence before going after a high-profile NFL player. They searched Carruth's home and car, but found nothing concrete. Then they looked into his phone records, specifically focusing on two calls that Carruth made in the hours leading up to the shooting, one to Watkins and one to Michael Kennedy. Meanwhile, Carruth went back to his normal life, rehabbing his ankle injury and working to get back on the field. He tried not to think too much about the ongoing investigation, but he knew it was only a matter of time before police found something. Nine days after the shooting, the police had gathered enough evidence to make a move. First, they targeted Watkins, who they thought was the most likely to flee or fight. The police found the motel in Charlotte where Watkins lived and on the night before Thanksgiving began staking out his room. Watkins tried to ignore the police presence. He watched TV with his girlfriend, and when the police tried to call his room, he turned off the ringer. Eventually, the lead investigator knocked on the door, and Watkins finally answered. The investigator asked Watkins to come with him so they could talk. Watkins reluctantly agreed. The police took Watkins to the station and locked him up in a jail cell. Before they sealed him in for the night, they asked him a single question. Was he willing to risk a death sentence to protect Ray Carruth? The next morning, Carruth was in bed with a brand new girlfriend when he heard loud knocking at his door. He had a sinking feeling in his chest. He knew who it was. As a small show of his disrespect, Carruth answered the door and greeted the police completely naked. The officers informed Carruth that he was under arrest. Carruth, expressionless, asked to get dressed. Two cops accompanied Carruth upstairs, where he put clothes on and then was handcuffed. Carruth was taken to the police station and put into a cold interrogation room to sit by himself. There, his composure broke. No longer was he cool, collected, and defiant. He was absolutely terrified. When the local news reported Carruth's arrest, Michael Kennedy immediately drove to the police station to confess. He had no desire to protect Rake Ruth or Van Brett Watkins. In two interviews, the second with his lawyer present, Kennedy laid out the entire sequence of events, from Carruth first approaching him about the plan to the night of the shooting. Meanwhile, Watkins was refusing to cooperate or answer any questions beyond denying involvement in the shooting. The police tried another tactic. They brought him into the same interrogation room as Ray Carruth so the two could see each other. Carruth's terrified demeanor had the intended effect. Watkins realized that Carruth would try to pin this on anybody but himself. When Watkins went back to his own interrogation room, the police had another surprise for him. A recording of Michael Kennedy's confession which implicated Watkins as the shooter. Listening to the confession finally convinced Watkins to talk. He wasn't willing to risk the death penalty to protect Ray Carruth, 
so he told the police everything. The next day, all three men appeared in court where they were charged with conspiracy, attempted murder, and shooting into an occupied vehicle. Carruth's bail was set at $3 million and his conspirators at $1.5 million. After the charges were filed, the Carolina Panthers announced they were putting Carruth on leave of absence without pay. Carruth was able to find a bondsman and make bail. On December 6th, he was released to await trial. There was one major stipulation of his release. If either Sharika or Chancellor Adams died, he would need to turn himself back into the police. Because if that happened, the criminal charge against him would be upgraded from attempted murder to murder in the first degree. And Sharika Adams' condition had gravely deteriorated. She was in a vegetative state. On the morning of December 14, 1999, her family decided to take her off life support. Before they did, they brought her three-week-old baby Chancellor from the neonatal care unit and brought them together one last time. Later that day, Sharika Adams died. When they received word of Sharika's death, the Charlotte police set off to re-arrest Ray Carruth, but he was nowhere to be found. Carruth was on the run. When Carruth heard that Sharika died, he panicked. He didn't consider turning himself in, as he agreed to do when he posted bail. All he could think about was escaping Charlotte. He wanted to go back home to Sacramento. He asked a former girlfriend to help him escape, but she wanted no part in it. So Carruth found someone who would, a family friend, hairdresser Wendy Cole. She was already planning on making the drive to California to attend cosmetology school. Carruth convinced her to let him ride in her trunk as she made the 2,500-mile journey. Carruth crawled into the back of Cole's 1997 Toyota Camry. He carried $4,000 in cash, a few energy bars, and a cell phone. Around 10 p.m. on December 14th, Cole and Carruth fled Charlotte. Early the next morning, after driving for 10 hours and 500 miles, Cole pulled into a motel in Wildersville, Tennessee. Throughout those 10 hours, Cole had occasionally talked to Carruth on her cell phone, but she'd mostly had time to think about what she was doing. Carruth had convinced her to help him with an emotional appeal, but the more she considered the possible repercussions of her actions, the more doubt she had. Did she really want to harbor a fugitive? Carruth remained in the trunk of the car while Cole went into the motel. Inside her room, Cole changed her mind. She didn't want any more involvement with Ray Carruth. So she picked up the phone and called Carruth's mother in Sacramento. Carruth's mother called the bail bondsmen who were also on Carruth's tail and told them where he was. The bail bondsmen called the Charlotte Police Department. The Charlotte Police Department called the FBI. In the late afternoon, five FBI agents arrived at the Best Western in Tennessee to apprehend Carruth. They didn't know exactly where he was, and they didn't know if he had a weapon. So they had to be careful about how to capture him. The first objective was to get Wendy Cole out of harm's way. The lead FBI agent went to the front desk and told them to call Cole's room and tell her to come to the lobby because of an issue with her key. When Cole complied, 
The FBI agent identified himself and asked her where Carruth was. She said that Carruth wasn't in the room, but didn't specify where he was. The FBI agents searched her room. No Carruth. They asked Cole again where Carruth was. An emotional Cole, with tears in her eyes, refused to say. Instead, she kept looking at her car keys. The FBI agents finally got the hint, realizing that Carruth was in the trunk. Cole told them that she didn't want Carruth to be hurt, and she didn't want him to know that she'd turned him in. It was dark by the time the FBI agents surrounded the trunk of Cole's car. They spoke to Carruth briefly, making sure he didn't have a weapon and wasn't suicidal. Then they told Carruth to hold his hands up as they opened the trunk. Carruth held his hands up and allowed himself to be arrested. After 21 hours in the trunk of a car, he was physically exhausted, mentally defeated, and ready to finally face judgment. When we come back, Ray Carruth stands trial. Now back to the story. In the span of a month, 25-year-old Ray Carruth had gone from respected NFL player to murder suspect. By the time he was captured in Tennessee and extradited back to North Carolina, he had been cut by the Carolina Panthers and indefinitely suspended from the NFL. He now had to face the toughest fight of his life, his murder trial. It took 10 months for the trial of Ray Carruth to commence. Despite the evidence against him, it was still a complex case, made even more complicated by the prosecutor's decision to seek the death penalty for all of the defendants. Carew's mother brought together a team of lawyers trying to replicate the dream team that defended O.J. Simpson. She wasn't able to get Johnny Cochran, but she did hire David Rudolph, another prominent attorney recommended by Cochran's partner. In May of 2000, the lead prosecutor offered all four defendants a plea deal. If they pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, they would avoid the death penalty. Carruth, maintaining his innocence, refused to plead guilty and rejected the deal. The prosecutor then offered each of the other defendants their own deal, hoping to get one of them to testify against Carruth. Kennedy and Abraham refused, but Watkins agreed. Ray Carruth's trial officially began on October 23, 2000. On the first day of arguments, the prosecution presented their most compelling piece of evidence, Sharika Adams' 911 call, in which she directly implicated Ray Carruth in her own shooting. The lead prosecutor believed that Sharika was the strongest witness for her own murder. The jury members, many of whom were in tears as they heard the tape, seemed to silently agree. Carruth's lawyer, David Rudolph, knew that they were facing an uphill climb. Rudolph, in his opening statement, laid out an entirely different theory of the case. According to Rudolph, the real villain of the story was Watkins, who was angry at Carruth for backing out of a massive marijuana deal. The night of the shooting, Watkins was following Carruth and shot Sharika Adams in a fit of rage after she flipped him off on the road. The theory was believable. Watkins did have a history of both drug dealing and murder. For the first time in months, 
Carruth felt a little bit of optimism as he listened to his lawyer speak. Maybe Rudolph really could make a miracle happen and beat the murder charge. The centerpiece of this theory was a statement from a prison guard, Sergeant Shirley Riddle. She claimed she heard Watkins say it was Ray's fault. If he had just given us the money, none of this would have happened. On top of his alternate theory, Rudolph directly took on the 911 tape, pointing out that Sharika Adams was mortally wounded, in shock, and not entirely reliable about what she saw. The opening statement accomplished two things. It presented a believable alternative theory of the case, and it helped to discredit Van Brett Watkins, the prosecution's star witness. Rudolph's plan had one major problem, though. Watkins was not the prosecution's only star witness. They had another. Michael Kennedy had spent 13 months in jail, and his options were becoming limited. His lawyers and the prosecution couldn't agree on a plea deal. The lowest amount of prison time offered was still 20 years. Kennedy decided to try a different tactic, a Hail Mary. Kennedy reached out to the prosecutors and offered to testify against Carruth without a plea deal. In return for his testimony against Carruth, Kennedy simply wanted to be treated well when his own trial came around. Even the prosecutors were surprised when Kennedy made his offer, but happily took it. When Carruth watched Kennedy take the stand, he lost what little optimism he had. It wasn't just a problem for his defense. It was a personal betrayal. He always expected Watkins to look out for himself and snitch. Kennedy, on the other hand, was a friend that he thought would be loyal. But he was wrong. Kennedy laid out his version of events. How Carruth asked to borrow his car, how he threatened Kennedy if he didn't drive, how they bought the gun, and how the shooting happened. His testimony was devastating for Carruth's defense, contradicting everything in Rudolph's theory of the case. It was so effective that the prosecutors decided to not even call Van Brett Watkins to the stand. The court also heard the testimony of Candace Smith, who recounted how Carruth had confessed his role in the shooting at the hospital. A cavalcade of ex-girlfriends also appeared as character witnesses, testifying that Carruth was often moody, vengeful, and threatening, especially when dealing with potential pregnancies. When the prosecution finished presenting evidence, it didn't look good for Ray Carruth. The defense needed a surprise play of their own to salvage the case, so they decided to call Watkins to the stand, hoping to pick apart his story and bolster their drug deal theory. It was a high-risk strategy. Watkins' testimony could help them, or it might be the final nail in Ray Carruth's coffin. Watkins intimidated everyone involved. The judge ordered extra security, placing a guard between Watkins and himself and between Watkins and the jury. His legs were also shackled. These measures made the prosecution nervous. It reinforced the defense's assertion that Watkins was the true danger. Watkins testified for two days. On the stand, he was defiant, quick-witted, and most importantly, consistent. Rudolph tried and failed to pick apart Watkins' story, but Watkins stuck to it and didn't give Rudolph an inch to create doubt. He flatly denied the testimony of Sergeant Riddle, testifying that he never said what she attributed to him. 
He also showed off his intimidating, violent side. When Rudolph pushed Watkins about why he didn't bring a gun to kill Adams and needed to buy one that night, Watkins snapped at Rudolph. He said he didn't need a gun and could rip someone apart like a rag doll. Watkins also emphasized that, more than anything, he wanted Carruth dead. Carruth and Rudolph saw Watkins' outburst as a win. It proved how unhinged he could be, the kind of person who might, as they contended, commit murder for trivial reasons. But Carruth wasn't sure it would be enough to put doubt in the jury's mind. There was no real proof for the drug deal gone bad theory. Then, the best piece of evidence, the statement Watkins supposedly made to Sergeant Riddle, was undone when another prison guard testified that Riddle seemed obsessed with Carruth and spent unusual amounts of time with him alone in his cell. Sergeant Riddle's testimony was tainted, and so was the rest of Rudolph's drug deal theory. If the trial proved anything to the jury, it was that Ray Carruth always had a way of pulling women into his life and getting them to do what he wanted. Even if that meant sheltering a fugitive or possibly committing perjury. When it came time to deliberate Carruth's fate, the jury was conflicted. Three days in, they sent a note to the judge asking for further instructions as they were seemingly at an impasse. The judge told them to deliberate further. Finally, after four days, they had a verdict. On January 19, 2001, the day before his 27th birthday, Ray Carruth stood in the courtroom to hear his fate. The jury found him guilty on three counts, discharging a firearm into an occupied vehicle, intent to kill an unborn child, and conspiracy to commit murder. However, they found him not guilty of first-degree murder. The jury agreed that Ray Carruth was responsible for the death of Sharika Adams, but they were unsure about the most serious charge, which could have led to a death sentence. So they compromised. No one was happy with the verdict. The prosecution wanted a first-degree murder conviction. The defense wanted an acquittal. Ray Carruth was shattered. Any dreams of returning to the football field were gone forever. He was now a convicted felon. The following Monday, the judge sentenced Carruth to no less than 18 years and 11 months, and no more than 24 years, with no early parole. Carruth's mother sobbed in the back of the courtroom as she watched the guards walk her son out of the room to begin his journey to prison. In the following days, Michael Kennedy, Van Brett Watkins, and Samuel Abraham all took plea deals. Kennedy was sentenced to a minimum of 11 years in prison, while Abraham received 90 days. Van Brett Watkins pled guilty to second-degree murder. He is scheduled to be released in 2046, when he will be 85 years old. The trial was over, but a myriad of legal battles continued for years after. Carruth's lawyers appealed the conviction all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, arguing that Sharika Adams' testimony was impermissible because she wasn't able to be cross-examined. Alongside the appeals, Ray Carruth's mother sued to gain access to Chancellor Lee Adams, whose custody had been awarded to Sondra Adams. They continued fighting until Carruth's mother lost her appeal in 2006. There were also civil proceedings against Ray Carruth. 
As much as he tried to avoid it, he had to provide for his son. In 2004, he was found liable for Sharika Adams' death and ordered to pay $5.8 million to the Adams family. The money was essentially symbolic, as Carruth was broke. His NFL pay was long gone. Chancellor Lee Adams suffered brain damage and cerebral palsy due to the traumatic circumstances of his birth and will always need to live with a caregiver. He struggles to speak and walk. But he still leads an active life with Sandra's help and competes in the Special Olympics in a motorized wheelchair. He is also an avid fan of the Carolina Panthers. In February of 2018, six months before his scheduled release, 44-year-old Ray Carruth wrote an open letter to Sandra Adams. While he still denied his guilt in the shooting of her daughter, Carruth accepted responsibility for her death and apologized. Yet, despite the supposed regret and contrition he showed, the letter still illustrated Carruth's selfish and self-absorbed side. He sent the letter to a news station, telling them he wanted to debunk what Sandra Adams had said about him, namely that he'd never apologized. He also said that he wanted to raise Chancellor after he was released. After Carruth's letter was published, Sandra Adams made one terse statement, that Carruth would never have custody of Chancellor. He would never be raised by the man who tried to kill him. The letter sparked an outcry. Carruth penned another response. He gave up on the idea of being part of Chancellor's life. Still, he hoped that Adams would bring Chancellor to meet him at least once before he left prison. She did not. On the morning of October 22, 2018, 44-year-old Ray Carruth was released from prison. As he emerged from the prison gates, he was greeted by his mother and other members of his family but not by Chancellor Lee Adams. Six days later, Chancellor and Sandra Adams were seated in a VIP section at Bank of America Stadium in Charlotte, cheering on their beloved Carolina Panthers. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals like Sports Criminals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap browse, and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 